Hello, podcast listeners. Um, we are reposting this episode. So if you've already listened to episode 10 and loved it, great. Um, but we tweaked the audio a little bit because we got some feedback about the balance being way off. And also, um, that photo of the flower beetle got us an ID. Um, Alice, Dr. Allison Bain, uh, who had joined us on a previous episode talking about the role of insect remains in archaeology and what we can learn about how humans lived based on the, the, the bugs that, that we find um, in uh, archaeological digs where people lived, um, she identified that beetle as, I'm trying to pronounce this right, Orizophilus mercator, which is the merchant grain beetle. And it isn't even in the same family as the flower beetles we were looking at. Uh, so we were really way off base, but still small, uh, I guess to the untrained eye, similar looking beetle, but the serrated, serrated edges on the pronotum um, which is like this shield that beetles kind of have on their thorax, is very distinctive for the merchant grain beetle rather than the flower beetles. We'll post a picture um, of our dead little beetle uh, on Twitter and Facebook. And again, thanks to Allison Bain for helping with the ID. So please enjoy episode 10 if you haven't heard it yet, or if you didn't like the audio the first time, listen to it again. Thanks. In 2013, there's a weasel stolen the sausage from a supermarket, and because the CCTV and monitoring the the whole area, so that weasel is on TV. younger than his age by 10 years and he has a young 
If Bull's brother seriously looks like he's 28, even though he's like 43. 45. 45. He's seriously, I'm not even joking. He looks no older than 30. No exaggeration. <laughs> I don't think he can grow a beard, although Bull can grow five beards. Yeah, Bull's got a good... <laughs> but he still has a baby. He still has a very... Bull's extremely handsome. I say that but a lot you. of people Thank Bull's you. like ridiculously handsome. Bull's that hot guy who works at the co-op. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so you guys were like gotten a punk young... And your brother got a punk young, and then got you in the punk even younger. So, even though he's a, cu- a couple years older than me, punk-wise, he was like five or eight years older than me. He's going to shows in the late in the mid late eighties. Yeah, yeah, we started in. I think he went to his first show in eighty six, and I went to mine in eighty seven. Yeah, so I didn't go to my first show until ninety two. So, yep. yeah, five years. And five years is like huge in punk, you know. Definitely. <laughs> Punk's not that old to begin with. Yeah, especially then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bull's a legend. He was in three, two slash three bands already before he was in my band. And Bull is also a birder. Did you get into that before Tony or through Tony? Uh, birding through Tony. I was always interested in nature and kind of thought of myself as a naturalist. But uh, but through touring with Tony and traveling all over the world, seeing interesting birds uh, that really actually looking through Tony's binoculars was the game changer for me uh, and I, I brought extra just for that <laughs> yeah that's really what sold me on it uh, was actually being able to see birds close up in a way that I never had before and from there it's just blown up now we're even closer than ever I, it, it's amazing to say that but it is absolutely true awesome so we are uh, I'll do the usual introduction yeah. stuff real quick. I will say this. Yeah. When you are in a band, it is very similar to being in a r- romantic relationship. Yes, with four or so people. And one of the ways that romantic relationships stay viable is if you have common interests with your partner. And Bull and I have managed because of like the band and like traveling around the world, seeing all the, you know. Yeah, you could say Bull got into nature and got into birds because of me, but because my bandmates were into nature, I was able to arrange like excursions on tour. So like, you know, let let let's be very clear that like they're all they were into nature themselves, which enabled me to be like a bit more intentional about where we went to see birds. So you know, you know, so that, so it was definitely like a feedback loop that we had, but. So, so yeah, so rather than getting drunk and sleeping late the next day, we would get up early and go for a hike. Yeah, or go swimming or snorkeling or. So Bull and I have managed to like. When you're in a band, you feel like your bandmates are like family, you know, forever. Whether or not you like them, but a I liked all my bandmates; they're already you know my friends. And b we now we get to share this hobby forever. You know, we're always, it's not just birds, you know, we go to the Pine Barrens, look for Pine Barrens tree frogs, quack, 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 quack. <laughs> we go look to go to bogs and look at rare plants and we, you know, we just like, hey, there's a cool spot, let's go check it out, see what's there. Like, that's awesome. We go with Billy to look for turtles. Yeah. And look for rattlesnakes and oh, yeah. bulls good luck, he found me a black rat snake on the trip we went up together. Not to mention some chicken of the woods, which was really good. 
Um, it sounds like I don't remember that, so it sounds like a trip that I wasn't even on. You were totally there. Yeah, you were there. You were there, and you were upset because I hadn't told you about all the briars, and you had worn shorts. And so we were like wading through. Wait, where's the black rat snake? The black rat snake was on this mountain slope that was on the way to see some rattlesnakes. Oh, okay. I forgot about the black rat snake. It was overshadowed by the, what, how many rattlesnakes did we see? <laughs> we saw a bunch of rattlesnakes, but we also, I just remember. And a ring neck. We, we flipped a ring neck. I was like, it doesn't happen that often, but I was like, this is the kind of rock you flip a ring neck snake under. And <laughs> sure enough, right there, there was a ring neck snake. Um, <laughs> so when that happens. If people hear static, it's because. Um, it's my bat, well, it is, it is the bat detector that I'm using. Maybe let's turn it off until we actually do see some bats. I was more confident than I maybe should have been. Um, I have seen bats on this roof, and I will include that little clip of me talking about the bats when Gigi and I saw them. Um, and they're back. And they're back. Oop, there they go again. Neat. They're totally digging it. Well, they're digging our bugs. They're not digging us. They don't give a crap about us. They don't give a crap about us. You're welcome no. um, for providing a home for your moths and beetles that you are now munching out of the air. Um, just go behind you. No, I'm just it went in between the houses. houses. Okay, neat. They keep coming um, over the roof, though. They keep coming over the roof and then, like, flitting between the sets of twins. And they, at first, like, my brain was like, oh, they're more swifts, but they're not making any noise, and they're fluttery as hell. So, we got bats. Neat. I wasn't sure. Congratulations. One more observation. Some dickhead below has a bug zapper. We keep hearing go snap, and we were complaining about it a minute ago because this, I think we all know by now those don't actually kill mosquitoes. They just kill everything else. Um, every one of those little zaps is potential food for the bats, but they're not getting some dickhead is indiscriminately killing all the other bugs. Um, it is actually not my bad detector. It is property of the city of Philadelphia. So don't drop it. All right. right. Um, However, the thing is, is that this gets me more efficient in the use of it for my public programs. You're practicing. I this am. Is professional development. It is indeed. So um, with that, we'll do our usual stuff. We'll say, hey... If you like us, please tell all your friends about the podcast on whatever medium, vocal, uh, text, you name it. You can snap it, whatever you want to do. Um, WhatsApp, whatever. Let people know about how much you love this podcast. Uh, you can tell other people about the podcast also by liking it on Stitcher or iTunes, whatever your podcasting platform is. Rate us, please, and leave us some, leave us some feedback. Um, you can... Uh, Tweet at us at HerbWildlifeCast and email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com um, and tell us about ideas for, for a podcast episode or stories. You can also, um, with your very own phone or other recording device, uh, you can make a recording of a little something where you are, you describing it, what you're looking at, what have you, and we'd love to include that as some wildlife bling on a future episode. Um, and uh, we... Um, we're actually running kind of low on wildlife bling. I've got like one one thing about geckos in San Salvador in the hopper um, and after that we're out of wildlife bling so we need, really need some wildlife bling um, and once again we're recording on my roof so you're going to hear some of the street noises of West Philadelphia far off sirens um, maybe a Mr. Softy truck going by which happens at weird hours at night um, but we uh, 
we want we want to hear from you. And if you got ideas for longer pieces, um, you just drop us a note. We'll work that out. We love. I mean, look, this is we we have thought of a certain amount of stuff on our own, but we know that you out there, if you're liking an urban wildlife podcast, you probably like urban wildlife in general, and you can probably find some urban wildlife right where you are um, that we and your fellow listeners around the world want to hear about. Hey, podcast listeners. Earlier in the evening, before we went on the roof, we tried to identify some flower beetles. Podcast listeners might remember that when we did our interview with Allison Bain, the archaeologist who studies arthropod remains, to learn about how people lived. When we were talking, I had just before interviewing her thrown away a whole bunch of beetle-infested flour, which once I talked to her, I realized was stupid. I should have saved, saved some of that flour to, to ID the beetles. And then when I talked to my parents recently, my parents had some infested cornmeal. So I was like, wait, don't throw it away. Um, so we're gonna try to ID these flower beetles in the sample of my parents' infested cornmeal. We've got Bull, say hi. Hello. Bull manning the the USB microscope I've got. The thing is, we haven't actually killed these things yet, and they run fast as soon as they see that light on them. But we got a dead one on its side, so we're gonna look at that. Um, there are two species that I think it might be either a red flower beetle or uh, a confused flower beetle, named because it is easy to be confused with the red flower beetle. Apparently, what you're looking at is the shape of the antenna, of the antennae. Antenna, which is plural? Antennae, I think it is. Okay, at least one antenna um, per beetle, and how the sort of segments on the ends of the beetle, of the, of the antenna look. So the, the red flower beetle has three clubs at the end of each antenna. We're looking at that one. I don't see like... We got a visitor. Yeah, another beetle looks like it's humping the dead one. Or just crawling over it. Coleoptera necrophilia. <laughs> and so now I'm going to look at um, the confused flower beetle, which has like here the antennae. That's um, confused. The antennae mm. on these look really much longer. Yeah. Like, that one's a short. different kind of flower beetle entirely. Back to. I, I look at my my uh, beetle book at work. Um, let me get a little spoon to try to fish it out. Alright, so Bull has extracted the dead flower beetle. We're gonna put it under our microscope. Alright. Yes, I think these are flower. I think these are confused. So these are tiny. These are just like, how do we compare this? This is smaller than a grain of rice. So from time to time in the podcast, we're gonna post us trying to identify something. Um, I, we have a recorded bit of me and Tony trying to identify um, fall, a couple species of fall asters, um, which I'm going to edit down into basically a comedic short. Can you please have yakety sax played in the background? <laughs> What's yakety sax? <laughs> Benny Hill singing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we probably should. Um, yeah, I don't see like a major set of three clubs or something. But admittedly, these flower beetle, the, this looks like confused, but it is... Um, the antenna look longer than the ones in these pictures. So we can't tell what kind of flower beetles these are. Um, I'll have to shop around some pictures. Synanthropic organism. We're going to start with, um, uh, with a discussion of 
of flying foxes in Australia. I guess everywhere from Middle Middle East through, do they have flying foxes in Africa? I believe so. Um, and through Asia, like, Australia. Throughout the tropical old world. Yeah, but not the new world, so we're kind of jealous. Um, we don't have your fruit bats, and so we want to hear about those fruit bats. And here we go. And for reference, in a previous episode at the cemetery, at the Woodland Cemetery, this is the species that Tony saw while making out with a punk lady in Brisbane, Australia. Well, my name is Marie Treadwell Kerr. I'm a member of the Australasian Bat Society. I coordinate a program called Australasian Bat Night, which happens every March and April. And I'm also a co-convener of the Australasian Bat Society's Flying Fox Subcommittee. And I got involved in flying foxes when I was living in Sydney. And I read a, a story about them. This is back in 1985, about the flying foxes. At that stage, there was just one colony in Sydney in the northern suburbs. And I read about it in the local paper. And then there was this group setting themselves up to conserve them. Flying foxes, or fruit bats, which is another name for them, are a large bat. They're essentially a tropical animal but they're not found in the Americas at all. They're, um, they differ from the microbats, um, as well as in size, in that they're vegetarian. They eat nectar and pollen and, and fruits, and they're very important for um, pollinating um, plants and for dispersing seeds. There's about um, th over 1,300 species of bats in the world, and there's about just over 100 species of flying foxes. And in Australia, um, on the mainland, we have four flying fox species. Little red flying foxes, spectacled flying foxes, black flying foxes, and grey-headed flying foxes. And they're found in different parts of Australia. Two of our mainland flying fox species are, are um, threatened. Um, that's the grey-headed flying fox, which is the has its core um, habitat exactly where people live on the east coast of Australia, and the spectacled flying fox, which is found in a very tiny place up in um, up where I live right now in the tropics um, in far north Queensland. Its population has reduced by about 60% in the last 10 years. So, if you were a flying fox. Why would you want to set up camp in Sydney or, or Melbourne or any other city? Well, basically, um, the main flying fox um, habitat in, in Australia is, is either the tropical north or the east coast of Australia. And, so they, and all of our major cities are there and all of our flying foxes, or most of the flying fox habitat is there as well. But in recent years, they've been coming. They've been the bats have been becoming more urbanised and uh, and have been staying all year round, or some of them have been staying all year round in our cities. And the reason for that has got to be to do with food and the reliability of food in our gardens in the cities, both backyards and um, in our public gardens. Um, the plants get watered regularly, therefore. They might be a little bit more um, reliable in their um, providing food for the flying foxes, especially at times of year where um, there can be shortages of food. Australian climates are pretty erratic. You know, our eucalypts, which are their main diets, 
over just as erratic when they flower or when they don't flower. And um, so for, for a flying fox, going into a, staying in a city is um, a more reliable um, source of food. The nomadic animals, and the numbers vary depending on how much food is around. So you, you mentioned them sort of appearing in Sydney and, and now they seem to be in several cities. This sounds like a relative, is this a relatively recent phenomenon of, of urban flying foxes? True, they're new to um, Adelaide, which is um, a city on the south coast of Australia, a little bit to the west, but not that far to the west. And they used to only be occasional visitors there. But they've been in Melbourne for um, uh, over 100 years, but they haven't had a big group until fairly recently um, that was there all year round. Some of this is to do with climate change too. We used to think that in winter they moved away because it was cold, but um, the grey-headed flying fox doesn't seem to mind the cold. Uh, they hung around in Canberra in winters, getting down to minus seven. We tested to see how whether it was a little bit warmer where they were than um, the rest of um, Canberra, but it was just as cold. <laughs> um, so when flying foxes roost, I guess, what is the, what is the camp? What does it look like? Um, you know, if you're, you're, if you're, is it, is it, is it inconspicuous? Is it totally conspicuous? What is it like? It's generally conspicuous. Um, it depends on the numbers that are there. A small camp, um, people may not know that notice they're there at all. Uh, sometimes in Canberra, I've quite enjoyed watching um, people walking. They're in a, a public park where there's a lot of events held in Canberra called Commonwealth Park, and I've enjoyed watching people walking up and down coming to an event and then suddenly realise, hey, there's bats in these trees. Um, but when there is a big group of them, they get they can get a lot noisier and things too, so that um, uh, it's easy to tell that they're there. If you live close by to flying to a flying fox camp, you may be impacted by um, them coming into your backyard um, as they emerge, if you live right close. And so then you have droppings, and flying foxes, because they eat, they only eat a liquid diet, so when they're eating fruit, they chew the fruit up, drink the juice, and spit the rest out. So there's spat out plus droppings. And that can be a bit messy. They also mark their territories with scent glands. Um, so that's especially uh, prominent in um, the mating season, which is for three of the flying foxes is, um, is autumn. And... Um, that is a smell that a lot of men don't like in particular, but some women do. It's quite, and it can be quite strong, so that if you're living quite close to that, the smell at that time of year can be a bit strong. Flying foxes, there's a big group of them. They're social animals. They make lots of noises. They've got, you know, about 50 different communication noises, and they like to talk. So they can be noisy, but they'll be noisy at different parts of the day. Generally, if you the quietest time, if you're living near a flying fox camp, is at night time when they've gone out to feed. And this is where they turn up in people's yards, other people's yards, to eat the nectar from their eucalypt trees or to eat fruit from their fruit trees, native fruits and and sometimes domestic fruit. Okay. And when we talk about a camp, I mean, how many foxes, flying foxes are we talking about? Oh, it varies. Um, and it varies depending on what amount of food there is around. So... Um, there could only be, you know, a couple of hundred flying foxes or even less. Um, and the numbers can build up to, you know, 100,000 um, at times if there's lots of food around. Depend and depends on the species as well. We used to have in, in 
in, in Brisbane in the 1960s, there used to be five major um, campsites. Now there's something like about 50, um, but there's smaller numbers inside each camp. And we think this is because they, um, they're trying to feed closer to the, the smaller camps, so they save energy. And that's the same thing in, in, um, in, in Sydney too. When I lived there, there was, when I first moved there, there was one major camp. And then they moved to the Botanic Garden, so there were two major two two camps, and then we found another one at Cabramatta Creek, and now there's about five or six or seven, and they may not be, all be used at the one time. So when I was looking into this, I found articles about Botanic Gardens, um, sort of trying to evict their their camps. Um, I guess how have how have different um, cities around Australia dealt with the camps, I mean, I guess ranging from peaceful coexistence to to uh, to looking at them as pests. Yeah. And that's more, can be a bit of a time question too, because uh, as I said, when I was in Sydney, when we discovered um, the third camp, um, it instantly became became a flying fox reserve. Um, these days, when they discover a new camp, they want to move them away immediately. So there's differences in political time, and that's in the same city. Uh, in the botanic gardens, the big botanic gardens in Sydney and Melbourne, they they were where they were actually roosting was on some very valuable um, um, palm and fern areas, and some of these trees have uh, got historical significance, and some of them are trees that aren't around in their own um, native places any longer. So that's why they moved them. In Melbourne, they identified a whole lot of other areas and they ha and they moved them along a corridor just nudging them um, trying to get them to the area they that the people thought was the best area for them the flying foxes stopped at what the people thought was number two and they stopped there and stayed there like how do you get them to move um well most most um uh, attempts actually don't work uh, what they do because the flying foxes fly out at night and then they come back again in the morning, uh, it, what they try to do is disturb them before they settle down for the day. So the, the flying fox is nice, is tired, it wants to roost, it wants to rest for the day. Um, and somebody's making all this noise, and it's usually noise, uh, that's stopping them from being able to settle down. So they move somewhere else. Uh, you really don't have that much control over where they can go. Um, so what they did in Melbourne was um, where, if they went somewhere they didn't want them to, they kept the noise up there and until they moved to somewhere where they wanted them to go and they had to move from bit by bit by bit until they got there, which took lots of days, lots of time. Um, and in, in Sydney, they didn't send them in any particular place. They thought if they made enough noise at the Sydney Botanic Gardens, they'd move to one of the other camps nearby, which they did. Um, but they still have to um, make sure that, um, especially when it's coming up to birthing season, that the, uh, they make enough noise that the flying foxes don't settle in the botanic gardens. And that's years afterwards. So it's a very expensive exercise. And uh, there's been a review um, looking into the different um, attempts at dispersal in different places. And um, most of them have failed. Every single one of them costs a lot of money. And it also takes a lot of time and resources. Talk about sort of, I guess, a transition from 
from viewing them as a as a as, a, as an obstacle and, and looking at them as, as a tourist or um, educational opportunity. Yeah, and that's what they're doing here in in Cairns now. They've um, tried the last few years to move them and for, without any success. So now they've decided to turn this around. They know that the people that the, the tourists love them. People. Have, um, so we started um, a new management um, plan to look after them, which involves a lot of community education and community engagement to try and change um, some of the negative attitudes to people to make them see them more positive. Tony, how excited you are now to go check out some flying fox camps? Well, I mean, I saw them in uh, the... Well, we saw them in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, didn't we? Um, I remember seeing them on one of the drives between somewhere between Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, I don't recall the Botanic Gardens, though. I believe we were taken specifically to Melbourne Botanic Gardens to see the flying foxes. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Bull's not known for his memory. The, this touches on some themes that we that we think about, like we that, that come up with a lot of other animals. Like when we talk about um, sort of there's the commensals, there's the stuff that like lives with humans wherever we go, like house mice and flower beetles. Uh, but then there's which the flower beetles are a synanthropic organism of the episode. In case that wasn't clear already. And are you saying house mice like? So you're saying like. And how do you control them in your house? Not your house, but other people's houses? With mouse traps? Or an inside cats. cat? A cat only inside hunting that mouse! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they're those kind of critters, or pigeons, or what have you, that, that follow us wherever we go. Um, or take some plants like dandelions, or, um, or plantain, or um, hell. Burdock. Burdock, I was going to say Atlantis, um, on this block. Um, but uh, then there are the wild, what we think of as the wild animals, local wild animals that that find something useful in a city for them, like a resource that they like. And so here we've got flying foxes that, um, that like the regular, reliable food source of urban trees. Um, and... Uh, and sort of, or, you know, this is, thank you for putting this, these lovely fruit trees and eucalyptus trees uh, in your city. We'll think, we think we'll stay. Uh, and it's, you see those parallels in, you know, anywhere you are. I mean, you've got that. And we'll listen to a couple other stories in a minute about that sort of thing. Um, but in Philadelphia, uh, you know, we still don't, we don't have the flying foxes, but we got, um, I don't know, think of possums or raccoons, you know. Um, we, in our first episode, our first season, we were talking about coyotes in Atlanta, Georgia, um, including coyotes that would <coughs> stand up on their hind legs to get the figs out of fig trees in people's gardens. <coughs> so, you know, there's another frugivorous uh, uh, mammal, albeit not flying, uh, that, that, that likes our gardens and likes the, the lovely fruit trees that we plant for them. Um, and so, Tony, I look forward to you doing some we got some nice recordings on this episode of um, of flying foxes. We have Marie Kerr from the Australasian Bat Society talking about them, but also that recording of them of a camp of flying foxes. Uh, and so you'll get out there and, 
and see some flying fox camps. Yeah, I will return. Sure, I'm Seth Magley. I'm the director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo. We keep one toe in that prairie dog research world because they're incredibly interesting, and we actually published a paper just a few years ago looking at human-coyote conflict data in Denver and then also looking at the distribution of prairie dogs. And what we found was that there are fewer conflicts between humans and coyotes in areas where there are prairie dogs, the logic being that the coyotes are more likely to predate the prairie dogs and less likely to go after pets, for example. Um, So I think that that's a pretty cool story that kind of gives us a sense of how managing an urban area like an ecosystem and sort of thinking about the needs of these different species can actually help reduce conflict with humans. So then some quick background on the prairie dogs. Um, I guess for me, you know, maybe this is my my East Coast bias, but I'm having trouble picturing like where you have prairie dogs in an urban setting. Can you describe like just like are we talking about a vacant lot that happens to have prairie dogs? Is it Are they in parks? Like where do you see prairie dogs in Denver, let's say? Yeah, the majority of my research colonies were on uh, private land on vacant lots. So you're sort of right on there. But there actually are some urban parks that do have prairie dogs. In some cases, just because the prairie dogs have sort of moved in and people don't really know what to do about them. And in others, because they actively manage for the prairie dogs. Um, so that does happen. I mean, so you'll see them um, all sorts of places where they can be a nuisance, where there are species that people are actively trying to remove or control. But then in other places, you'll see people actively managing them um, to sort of try to keep them around and sort of to increase their population. So they're an incredibly interesting species politically as well as biologically uh, because they're very divisive. People love them or they hate them. Um, they have no legal protection, so they are frequently um, just killed by um, developers and, and people who want to use that land for other purposes. But then at the same time, we know they're keystone species in the prairie ecosystem, a hugely increased diversity where they live. Um, so they really are a species that's sort of um, emblematic of our sometimes conflicted attitude towards wildlife in cities. How how do they disperse within cities? I mean, I think of them as, as a, a small animal that might be challenged by major roads. I mean, do they manage to, to I guess, cross roads well? I mean, or do they yeah. – how do they – go ahead, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Say, yeah, the short answer is we don't know how they do it, but they do. So I never really caught them at it, but I did genetic studies of these colonies that were incredibly isolated, like a colony where um, there will be no other colony for – three or four miles, and it's just nothing but major roads and sort of human development, but the genetics taught us that there were several first-generation migrants, you know, sort of new immigrants into that colony. So somehow they are making it between these sites and urban areas. Also, I thought it was kind of interesting, we detected no inbreeding, even in the most isolated, most urban colonies. So there is some kind of ability to move between them. Um, I don't know exactly how they do it. I know that uh, I see them dead on the road, so they're obviously not perfect at it. But um, they must just have some kind of ability to get around roads, find the little underpasses, find the little culverts, whatever they need to find to get between these colonies. But, yeah, it's it's really pretty remarkable that they are able to do it because you're right. You look at them and you think, oh, there's no way you guys can move across this urban matrix. Uh, But they do manage it. So something else that I should have asked a minute ago that I might move earlier um, in your discussion of prairie dogs, but why would people dislike prairie dogs? I mean, I think – um, I can think of sort of rancher conflicts, but, um, but but that's just me assuming it. Why why do people? I mean, why wouldn't you like a prairie dog? They seem cute. 
Yeah, I think that the the main reason in urban areas people don't like them is that they dig up landscaping. So they they go after that Kentucky bluegrass, they dig their burrows, they they sort of rip it up. I know golf courses just hate them because they move into that very closely manicured turf grass and they just make a huge mess of it. Um, They also do get plague, and people have concerns about contracting plague from prairie dogs, which is actually very difficult to do because you have to get their fleas on you, but um, unless you're handling dead ones, you're very unlikely to get plague from a prairie dog. But People worry about that or they worry that their dogs will run out and play with a dead prairie dog and end up with plague and bring it back home, um, things like that. Um, but a lot of it is also historically, and historically really it was the ranchers who really disliked the prairie dogs because they saw them as competing with their cattle for forage. Um, so there were just campaigns for, you know, decades and centuries to try to eradicate these prairie dogs to try to help the cattle industry. Um, and a lot of that attitude sort of is still prevailing. So prairie dogs, guys. Cute. Yeah, I'm a huge. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I wish I had them in my city, but we don't live in prairies. We don't. But this tempts me. I wanna. I wish. I don't know if someone's doing it. Maybe if you are and you wanted to call in, please let us know. I'm kind of curious about because I've been wondering about how groundhogs disperse. Like, <clears throat> we know that they like to live along roads. If you're, I mean, if you're not used to driving around Eastern North America, um, you'll see dead groundhog you'll see live groundhogs on the side of the highway like almost anywhere you go uh they love that like wide grassy um median median and then the margins of the highways and then of course you'll see them dead on the road too they wander out and they get hit by cars um but in philly i mean we see them definitely along railroad lines but i'll see them in places where they're like i don't know how the hell that groundhog got there like yeah (laughs) like there's this big vacant lot there isn't a railroad line nearby. It's like, I guess there's other yards and stuff here and there around it, but it's mostly like row houses without much grass around. And I'll still see like that one vacant, like one big, like, like you know, like vacant lot, like that's like a quarter of a block or something that size. And I'll still see that like one groundhog chilling, like waddling around and stuff. And I'm like, how did you get here? <laughs> um, and so the, this is the, Aside from just the wow factor of like urban prairie dogs, because they're prairie dogs, they're not like city dogs. I mean, like they're they're animals. You know, you ask people about prairie dogs who know anything about them, you'll, they'll talk about like them living out on the Great Plains and giant colonies, and like one of the things you think of along with like I don't know American bison. I mean, the like, grasslands are like some of the most altered and degraded habitat in North America. So if they can persist there and feed some black-footed ferrets in the, in the wild areas, some they can also... Some hawks. And they can they can apparently do well in cities, too. Some gopher snakes. And gopher snakes, yep. So I, uh... So yeah, and... So we'll, we'll keep an eye on our, our own local ground squirrels, our groundhogs, and and maybe think more of prairie dogs. One of our five skewerids. One of our five sciurids. Sciurids. I thought so too until someone else we interviewed about Project Squirrel out of um, also out of Chicago. Uh, we uh, will post a link to that. Um, that uh, he had he pronounced it Sayorit. So ever since then I felt corrected. Um, yeah, we've got chipmunks, uh, another ground squirrel. Um, we've got groundhogs. We have red squirrels and gray squirrels and flying southern flying squirrels in Philadelphia. We have more more sirens than you thought, huh? 
right, so we're going to wind up with um, a short listen about the the Siberian weasels of Beijing's hutongs. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to this uh, wonderful program. My name is uh, Zhu Lei. I came from I come from uh, China, and now I'm doing something like uh, freelance ornithologist, and also guided the foreigner birders around China to do the bird watching. So I lived in Beijing for altogether seven years. My name is Jeremy Goldcorn. Um, I lived in Beijing for 20 years, from 1995 until last year. Um, and I had lived all over the place in Beijing, many different places, um, but spent quite a lot of time right in the historic heart of the city. Um, and I am uh, an amateur wildlife enthusiast. I have been since I, uh, I grew up in South Africa, where we used to go on safari. We don't call it that, but, you know, to go and see wild animals. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so wild animals have always fascinated me. And Beijing uh, is not a city one normally associates with wild animals. Most people first think of pollution and a population of 20 million. But there's a, a rather amazing range of wildlife, both in the city and in the nearby uh, countryside. Well, um, I should sort of explain about the heart of Beijing, um, which is where I've seen the most uh, wildlife. Um, sure. It's Please a, a historic um, city center. I mean, what's left of it. There are still some uh, historic areas left. Um, and they, they are narrow alleyways, which are called hutongs. Um, and the houses in, in such areas, the old houses, are typically a Chinese uh, courtyard house. Um, so there's... Little gardens, essentially, inside uh, inside the courtyards. Um, so in, in the hutongs, you see quite a, an amazing variety of insects, uh, kind of you know, odd-looking, sort of cockroachy type of bugs, um, uh, centipedes and millipedes. Um, and then I think my favorite uh, animal sighting is the uh, what the Chinese call huangshulang, which is a Siberian weasel. Um, and these animals have uh, long been thought of as good luck uh, by Beijingers. Basically, Siberian weasel is a weasel. It belongs to a family of the weasel, badger, and uh, ferret. But the Siberian, Siberian weasel is some sort of, judge, just judging by the size, is a little bit similar with your mutton. So actually, it's a weasel, but it's quite a big one. Um, you, it's very difficult to see them because they move really fast, and often what you see is just a flash of yellow uh, running across the alleyway, and that's supposed to be lucky. Uh, I think the only time I saw anything more than a dash, a flash of yellow, was uh, there was one time when there was one on the roof of a courtyard house that I was staying in, and... Um, I was uh, sitting in the courtyard, uh, being very quiet, reading a book, and I saw it up on the roof, uh, and it was just uh, lurking up there, looking around, and uh, I, the whole sighting must have lasted about 15 seconds, which was certainly, uh, yeah, the best sighting I had. According to according to the, the literatures, uh, I think basically they feed on the rodents, rats, mice. Sometimes they can catch birds, I think. 
um, unlike other wild animals, the Siberian weasel in China, they've been protected more or less by uh, superstitious, which, which means people think the Siberian weasel is, some, is an animal with some sort of a magic. If you hurt them, you will be cursed. And uh, those animals, they can even, especially in Beijing, people believe that the Siberian weasel can, can control one's uh, spirit. Wow. So that animal is being protected. No one, no one hurt them on purpose. Because the hutong is disappearing, so the, the weasel is losing their habitat. And because now it's a more heavy, more heavier traffic, they have a higher probability being hit by the car or other vehicles. Well, unfortunately, uh, very bad and short-sighted urban planning um, has since the beginning of you know China's sort of economic opening up in, in the late 70s and early 80s resulted in huge swathes of um, uh, the the hutongs the of the the courtyard houses just being destroyed uh, and replaced with um, you know very boring uh, buildings um, that not only don't have any traditional Chinese character but also um, have completely ruined what was a, a, a really unique downtown area where you could be, and there's still a few of them left, a few areas, but you can be in a in a hutong and it feels almost like the countryside. They're very narrow, you know, so they're not very good for cars. Um, so they tended to be very quiet. And because of all these courtyards, you know, you have trees inside the courtyards. And it's almost like a, it was almost like this little little piece of countryside right in the middle of a of a big city. Um, but yeah, very sadly, very bad urban planning has um, has destroyed a lot of that. And I did some research through the internet about the uh, Siberian weasel in the Beijing, especially. I found some interesting news, such as in 2013, there's a weasel stolen the sausage from a supermarket. And because the CCTV is monitoring the, the whole area, so that weasel is on TV. I had a weasel first in Philadelphia recently. There no, a, where'd you say weasel? There was a skunk in the backyard of the co-op a few months ago. Really? Yeah. Did you see it alive? Yeah. It was okay. alive and it left. <laughs> All right. Went down 49th Street. Was it daytime or nighttime? It was daytime. Yeah. Next time that happens, you got to whip out your phone and record a little note for wildlife playing. Yeah. Um, but I smelled a skunk on. We're, we're trying to get we'll link to this. There's a, a young There's a. There's an artist um, who is doing a kind of. A, a, I don't know how to categorize it, but a, a project called Skunkadelphia, um, where she's like raising awareness about skunks in general and like wild urban wildlife but also like taking pictures with a little stuffed skunk around the city um and so we thought that was pretty cool so we'll show some of that um but i like it was like a few months ago we were out on our porch um and here in west like not too far from the co-op really 
we're probably like 10 blocks from the co-op tops. Yeah. Uh, and um, I was coming out in the morning and I smelled a skunk. And like, Tony's made this observation sometimes, Tony, about skunk smells in the city. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, it's like, is that a skunk or is that some dank weed? Right, so sometimes you're not sure if someone's smoking weed or if it's, or you're just, or just smelling some really, as Tony said, strong weed or um, whether it's an actual skunk. And so this time there's like no mistaking it. It was definitely a skunk. Uh, and I sort of looked up and I was like, talking to Magnolia, I was like, that's a skunk. And like a dude walking by on the sidewalk looks up at us. He's like, you know, you're right. I smelled the same thing. <laughs> and so, so there's a skunk hanging around. We haven't smelled it since. So maybe it was a transient skunk and it's taken up residence behind the co-op where I'm sure it gets a lot better trash behind the co-op. Um, For the record, there are no skunks in our backyard. Anymore. <laughs> Ever. Ever. Oh, okay. So there was once a passing skunk. There was another, tr- okay, there was a transient skunk. Transient. So, sorry. Would never want to imply that the co-op has permanent skunks. So, um, we're going to wrap up. We're going to say again that if you like this podcast, uh, please make sure you tell everyone you know how amazing it is and that they should listen. Um, if you like the podcast, please rate us. Um, highly on Stitcher and iTunes. That'll help more people find us and um, and that'll just improve their lives measurably. So you can improve a lot of lives and help a lot of people by liking us on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, for getting in touch with us, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at herbwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Um, and you can you know, just tell us about how what you think of the podcast and make suggestions. But you could also record something you can send us a file or you can call us and leave a voicemail at 267-603-3219 again 267-603-3219 and tony why ever would someone want to call us for some wildlife bling you want to describe it this time so yeah wildlife bling is you know we have a hotline right and you can call us up on that hotline and talk about your wildlife observations be it Black kites flying over Hong Kong, cafe bars in Kuchiba, could be um, skunks in Skunkadelphia. Yeah, skunks in Skunkadelphia <laughs> could be, you know, just uh, insects in your house, geckos Under behind your headboard. You know, you never know what cool stuff you see in a city that is awesome. Or it could be like something crazy like you live in Churchill, Manitoba and there's um, belugas in your river you know granted it's not really cities and they had people live there but you know what I'm saying <laughs> yeah. there's stuff like that, that sometimes happens. there's a beluga in the Delaware River yeah so it happens so, um, so yeah drop us a line you can also record a file on your phone and pop that to us by 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 um, email or you know drop us a note by some other means and we can figure out a file transfer for it um, and if you got another idea for a longer kind of project, we want to hear it. Um, I know I regularly accost people on the internet and tell them, I, and beg them for content. Um, and uh, so please let us know what you got. Um, coming up, I, I got some people from Singapore to write me back. And so we're working on some Singapore civet stuff in our series of Mezzo Predators released. Yeah, we should do something about meso-predators in Mesoamerica.
Hey, my name is Caitlin Dunnigan. I recently went to El Salvador, and while I was there, I found a little ectothermic friend. So the first time I saw the common house gecko, also known as Hemidactylus frenatus, I didn't really know what species it was. All I knew that it was a gecko, and it had been pointed out to me by a fellow group member that had seen something scurrying up the side of the wall, and they just asked me to take a look at what it was, and whenever I saw it, it was not one, but two geckos that were about the length of a number two pencil and they were tucked away in the corner of the wall. Now I wasn't really too surprised to see these geckos at the hotel we were staying at because it was removed from the city's traffic and the hotel lights provided a good amount of food for them. However, the next time I saw the gecko I was a little bit more shocked. The group I was with happened to be building for locals in San Salvador which is the uh, capital of El Salvador and the part that we were in was specifically called Old San Salvador to the locals, and poverty is much higher here as well as litter, unclean water, and pollution. So when we lifted up a piece of plywood and there was a gecko that was almost as small as a penny just hanging out looking up at us, we were all a little confused as to how it got there. But after talking with a couple locals, herpetology friends, and then doing some research on my own, uh, to find the species of the gecko, I learned that it was actually invasive to El Salvador, and apparently a common place for them to lay their eggs is on construction equipment, which explains how the gecko found its way to us in the middle of a bustling city. Common house geckos are originally from Southeast Asia and were brought in to El Salvador to deal with agricultural issues the country was having at the time. Uh, the environmental impacts of the common house gecko in Central America is poorly documented, but because they're thriving even in cities, people are a little worried about the long-term effects that their presence will have on other native species. Who talks don't say nothing. Who talks don't say nothing.